Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Let me pray. We'll read it, and then we'll, we'll see, what, see what it has to say. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, right where we are. I, I'm so grateful that to you no heart is hidden. <clears throat> There's no... Um, even though our hearts sometimes are even hidden to ourselves, there's so many times that I don't realize what I'm doing or why I'm doing it or, or any of those things. I have so many blind spots. But thank you that you see, there's no mystery in me to you. There's no, you see everything. And you know what to do. And you know what the answers are. And you know, um, you know what to say. So Lord, uh, I'm so grateful that we don't come to a God that you don't know what's going on or you're out of control. But Lord, you see everything. And Lord, we, um, Sunday is an act of us bringing ourselves into, into your orbit and into your alignment. I pray, God, that you would um, be blessed as we humble ourselves, as we come before you First, admitting that we don't know things, that we don't see 2020. Lord, and I, I, I pray that this humble attitude would help us to see, that you'd help us to, that you'd reveal things to us through your Bible, through your word. It's living, it's active, it's here for us today. Lord, would you speak? I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This is 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly in, in, from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the, the ten concubines whom he had left to care for, the, for his house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in, in widowhood. This is verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed before the set time that, that had been appointed. So David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he himself find himself in a fortified city and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeah, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's presumably left hand. 
So Joab struck him with it in his stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Okay. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. We call this rubbernecking in our culture. There's an accident. We all slow down just to look and see, you know, that's kind of what's going on here. And when the man saw that the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway, he cleared the wreckage into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of, of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and they besieged him in Abel Beth Maacah, and they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the women said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then they said, or then she said, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at, at Abel. And so they settled the matter here. I am one of those who are, peace, who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown over to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Chethrites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of, of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Sheba was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira and the Jerite was also David's priest, like his personal kind of um, chaplain type of guy for, for David alone. Okay. We've been studying uh, on Sunday mornings the amazing and multifaceted life of David, and we left off with David's son Absalom leading a rebellion against his own father and amassing such a following that David had to leave the city. He, Absalom succeeded in making his father abdicate the throne and leave the city for his own safety. Absalom, Absalom took over and then after 
some counsel and raising up an, a, an army, pursued his father into the wilderness to try to kill his own father, David. David was not of this way. He did not want to kill Absalom. But David and his men were seasoned warriors. They knew what it meant to do battle. Absalom was not a seasoned warrior. He was a, a man of privilege, a prince that grew up in the castle. He didn't know what it meant to really fight. He was unexperienced, certainly not experienced enough to lead an army or command an army, but yet kind of riding high on his own success of kicking David out and actually seeming to take over the kingdom, he pursues David kind of in his own pride and hubris pursues David into the wilderness, and David's surrounded by guys like Joab, guys like, um, like Abishai and his mighty men, guys that know what it means to fight, to fight hard, to fight dirty. They know how to use the land and the terrain to their advantage. These guys are professional killers. That's what they do. And so they lured Absalom and his army into a very a marshy, kind of wetland area, knowing that the land would make it difficult, would swallow up Absalom and his army. And that's exactly what happened. And then Joab and his men, David's army, systematically, without much effort, picked apart Absalom and his army. It was not an even fight. It was not a close match. It was a slaughter. It was a, um, it was Taken, to take the, the term, taking candy from a baby, so to speak. It was just so simple. And in the process, even though David had told his men, hey, be careful of my son. Leave him alone. Uh, be gentle with my son Absalom. Joab knew better. Joab had learned his lesson. It was Joab that after Absalom, if you remember, Absalom murdered the crown prince, Amnon, after he abused his sister, he murdered the crown prince Amnon and fled for his life. So he was in exile because he was an assassin of the royal family. But it was Joab that kind of bartered through another wise woman. Joab and a wise woman, this is a theme. He bartered with David an agreement to bring Absalom back into Israel. Joab trying to bring peace. Joab's super loyal, as we're going to see. Trying to bring peace between David and Absalom. David relents. He allows Absalom to come back, but Absalom's not repentant. Absalom's, he's, a, he's gaining a following. He's amassing more and more trust of the people towards him as king rather than David. And eventually this goes unchecked and he ends up running David out and Joab. Joab has now learned his lesson. Fast forward some years, there's Joab battling against Absalom. He's kind of created his own monster here. And Absalom's riding in the battle in this marshy area. And Absalom, you know, he's known for his beautiful hair. Well, his hair, according to the story, gets caught in some trees. The, the donkey under him keeps going. His hair gets caught. And Absalom is dangling there by his hair. And Joab, the one that created this thing even though he was told by the men hey remember what David said be careful with be gentle with Absalom Joab's like uh-uh this guy's dangerous I made that you know fool me once shame on shame on you fool me twice this is I'm not this is I'm not doing this again and he takes spears 
and kind of with a sniper shot because it's Joab, he just, from a distance, launches spears into Absalom and kills him. Even though David had said not to, Joab is like, no, I'm not doing this again. I'm not gonna let this repeat. He's not repentant. I know David loves his son, but I've gotta protect David and the kingdom. So Absalom dies. David's heart, part of David's heart, as you parents can imagine, died too. David is not the same man. And even though Absalom is dead, as we, in our chapter, I, excuse me, in the chapter before in 19, David comes back into the kingdom, but he is just a shell of a man. He barters politically with his own tribe, with Judah, because he needs their support. He needs all Israel's support. He barters with Judah to, to uh, accept him again as king. But in the process, the other 10 tribes of Israel, they get jealous. If you look back to chapter 19, it, uh, verse 40, it says, The king went on to Gilgal, and Shema went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half of the people of Israel, they brought the king on his way. In other words, they're reinstalling David from the wilderness back to his kingdom, but he needs support. He needs the support of the people. And so he talks to Judah. He also, this will come in later, he also tells Amasa, who was Absalom's chief of army, Absalom's general, he says, hey, I'll make you my general instead of Joab as kind of a political bartering piece to, to uh, gain trust and unity among Absalom's army. So he installs Amasa, he relieves Joab, and so he also gets Judah's support, some of Israel's support, and they, they're basically saying, we're going to install you as king, but the rest of Israel, they get, they get a little upset with this. Verse 41 of chapter 19 says, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And the men of Judah answered the men of, of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry over this? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense? In other words, are we taking advantage of him? Or has he given us a gift? Is, is there any quid pro quo here? No, this is legit. We're his, we're his family. Of course we're going to reinstall him. And the men of Israel answered, the men of Judah, and said, we have 10 shares. In, in other words, we have more electoral votes. We have 10 shares with the king. There's 10 tribes. There's only two, two of you. Judah is also Levi, the tribe of Levi. They're the, the priests. Um, so they're absorbed in the land of Judah. Hey, we have 10, we have 10 votes here. You guys... You know, we're, we outnumber you, so therefore, we should have closer proximity to the seat of power. That's, what, that's what's going on here. We should have more privilege. He needs us more. He needs our votes more. Why then did you despise us? You left us out. Were we not the first to speak of bringing our king back? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Notice whose voice is absent here. David. He's just in grief. If you read the first part of chapter 19, you'll learn that he's in so much grief. Joab has to come. He's in so much grief that his kingdom is falling apart. He's not in control anymore. His soldiers, his army know it, and they're starting to 
fall apart, Joab comes to him and basically says, snap out of it or you're not going to have a kingdom left. Like you need to get a hold of yourself. So David gets a hold of himself as best he can. He's riding back into the kingdom. But notice, one word from David could really solve this. But he just, he, he just, he doesn't have much of a voice anymore. Okay? So there's this, there's this weakness. And that's when Sheba, this worthless man, who apparently has some clout and has some pull, he blows a trumpet and he basically pulls David's votes from the 10 northern tribes. He says, we have no portion in David. In other words, we're pulling out. We're, I'm dividing. I'm going to finish what Absalom started. The, the fissure that Absalom created, I'm going to complete it. I'm seeing weakness now. And the word worthless man in the Hebrew simply means someone of such ill character. One of those guys that's just waiting for something like this to happen. Someone that when weakness happens, he will jump and exploit it. That, that's what that word means in Hebrew. A worthless person, someone that their character is, is just always conniving, always looking for an opportunity to kind of exploit other things and, and to exalt themselves. So Sheba smells blood in the water. He senses that David is wounded emotionally and therefore can't lead effectively. He senses the division and the bickering over power, and he uses the situation to try to topple David's government. That's what's going on here. So, that, that's the context of this. The context of this chapter is we have a rebel who fractures a kingdom. When I was reading it and studying it, the song kept going on in my head. Who can mend a broken heart? Except it was kingdom. <laughs> who can mend a broken And that's nerdy but that is truly what was going on in my mind when i was reading it we who can i think that is the theme of this chapter who can mend a broken kingdom who can what kind of wisdom you'll also notice this theme toward the end of the chapter what what wisdom can mend a fracture not just a fracture of a kingdom but maybe a fracture in a relationship or maybe a fracture within yourself uh, a division a, we, a, a, a feud, um, a fight. You've got Judah on one side that's around their king, and you've got the 10 tribes that are at odds with them and breaking apart. So there's a divided kingdom going on here. And, you know, we all, we live, I mean, gosh, we live in a fractured world. And I think we're all looking for wisdom. How, who, who can... Who can bring unity? Who can bring solidarity? Who can bring a fracture together? You know, the Middle East has been going through this for all of our lives, no matter what generation you're, you're a part of. And all of these world leaders have gone to Israel to, barter, to try to barter some kind of peace. Every president has given it their best go to try to make, you know, Palestine and, and Israel come together and coexist in harmony. They've all tried their best. And it's, you know, the, the leader that accomplishes that will, will make history. The Bible first says that, well, that will happen. There will be a leader that will somehow barter some kind of a peace deal, a pact, where no one else has ever been able to do it. That leader will make history. I mean, think Nobel Prize. Think I mean, the highest accolades that the world can give that person, that's what, we, I mean, and, I mean, 
it will be incredible. We're all looking for wisdom on a big level, a geopolitical level. I mean, think of Russia and Ukraine, but also on a personal level. I think all of us right now, we can think of people that we're fractured with and there doesn't seem to be an answer. If you, have you ever sat in a relationship and you've just thought, I don't really know what to do? There just doesn't seem to be a way. Or maybe just within yourself. Maybe there's just a division within you. You've got these, you love Jesus, but you also love other things. And the two just do not, we need, the Bible would say, this is part of the Bible's overall theme of wisdom literature. When we get into the wisdom literature of the Bible, one of the things that it talks about is how to bring peace to a fractured world or to a fractured self or to a fractured relationship. It takes wisdom, and that's what we get at. Today, we're going to look at the loyalty but simplicity of Joab. We're going to find out that really this, I mean, there's a lot of characters uh, mentioned here in this chapter, but you're going to find that a lot of those characters are there to support the character of Joab. You Clearly, the narrator wants us to see that. We're going to look at Lady Wisdom, and then we're going to look at the, what this means for us. Joab the Loyal. Um, like I said, you'll notice a lot of characters in this story. You'll notice Sheba and Amasa, and um, you'll notice Abishai, Joab's brother, and, you, and all of these, these people. But you'll notice very quickly that Joab is at the center of this. In fact, you'll notice that Dave, when Amasa doesn't show up, David goes to Abishai, Joab's brother, and says, you go out after Sheba. But then you notice that Abishai took the Parathites the whoever writes, and Joab's men. Joab was there. And quickly, as the narr- if you read it, as the narrative progresses, Joab's the one call- call- calling shots. He kills Amasa in cold blood, with, and no one questions him. No one stands against him. No one uh, you know, says, is this right? He is basically given free reign. He has the loyalty of the army, and of course, because he's been leading the army for so many years. As the story goes, David tells his new commander, Amasa, to gather all the men, that is, fighting men of Judah, and to pursue Sheba and, so that they can kill him before he can gain any more support and do more damage. David is wise enough to say, okay, Sheba's gonna, he can, he's going to finish the job that Absalom started. He's going to do more damage in the end. And this is a time-sensitive mission. This is Amasa's kind of first command under King David. I want you to go and get the fighting men. And three days is what I'm giving you. we got to get moving here. This is a time-sensitive issue. And Amasa doesn't show up in three days, you guys. Really interesting. Amasa doesn't... Okay, so we've got a former general of Absalom who doesn't show up on time in such an important mission. So David calls for Abishai, one of his mighty men, another battle-hardened general, also, he's Joab's brother, to take some elite men and go after Sheba. And he takes... Among these elite men, he takes Joab's men. That means they're loyal to Joab, which means he brings his brother Joab, as we can see that he he shows up. And on the way, now listen, on the way, where are they going? They're going north 
into the ten tribes. Sheba has ran north. On the way north, who do they find? Someone say Amasa. Amasa, the new general, who was told to beware. In south, to amass, to amass all, the general, or all the fighting men in Judah south. Why is he north? What is he doing? Well, first he doesn't show up with any men. And when we find him, we find him up north where he shouldn't be. Now, maybe, you know, he's where the ten tribes of Israel are. What's he doing up there? Maybe we don't find this strange, but Joab certainly does. <laughs> Joab finds it very strange. And the Hebrew is really obscure here in describing how Joab offs Amasa. Uh, it's actually really, it's, it's confusing in your Bible, but it's even actually more confusing in the Hebrew language, but there's one of two scenarios. One is either his sword fell out onto the ground, it, def it diffused Amasa's threat. It, when Amasa saw Joab's weapon fall onto the ground, Amasa probably relaxed a little bit. He's caught where he shouldn't be. Here comes Abishai and Joab and all these men, elite like Navy SEAL type guys, and he's probably taken aback he might be up to no good. I, it, we don't know for sure, but he might be up to go good. But we know he's not where he's supposed to be. Joab gets off his horse and his sword falls. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. But either he scooped it up with his left hand. In the ancient Near East, it was common that they fought with their right hand. Okay, They did other things with their left hand, but they fought with their right hand. And it fell onto the ground. Either he didn't see Joab scoop it up with his left hand, or Joab has another weapon that he used with his left hand. And Joab, to disarm him further, says, gives the, the common uh, ancient Near East greeting, extends with the fighting hand without a weapon, how are you, my brother? And it was during that, uh, with that hand that they would grab the back of someone's, they still do this today, they grab the back of someone's head or they grab their beard and they, ex they exchange a kiss of greeting. They, they would kiss one another. They would give a hearty, passionate greeting to their brother. How are you, brother? So this would have disarmed. So he's, first he sees the sword fall out. Then Joab says, how are you, man? So good to see you. Guy that took my job and that is not where you're supposed to be and that is, was working for my boss's for, uh, you know, re, you know, wayward son. This is what Joab's probably thinking. And he grabs him and he, he didn't see the sword in his left hand and Joab just skewers him in cold blood, mercilessly, without thinking. In fact, right away, it's, it's just so cold-hearted. Right away, he, he falls. His, so it's brutal. It's not just a stab. He does it in a way that is, it's, his entrails fall out. So Joab does it with some, he, he puts some girth into it. He does it with some spite. He makes it worse than it needed to be. And without even thinking about it, he turns to his brother, Abishai, and says, we need to go, we need to go after Sheba. Like, without even a thought. I mean, you can just see how cheap this Amasa's life is to Joab. He just kills him with spite, turns around and says to his brother, let's keep going. <laughs> and without even a thought, without taking him off the road, they man somebody right by the road to, to use this as a way to get more support. Anybody that's passing by, this man was supposed to say, 
You're either with David and Joab or you're not. You're like this guy, this fool, right? But it's kind of causing a traffic jam. It's slowing things up. People are looking at this spectacle. And finally, the man takes Amasa off the road so they can get they can get on their way because remember, this is a time-sensitive issue. The more time Sheba has to amass a following in the north, the more, per- the more perilous this is getting, politically speaking. <sighs> it's brutal. <laughs> I read this one commentator that said, um, it's, likely that, it's likely that Amasa didn't, didn't, uh, didn't die right away. And the commentator said, I have seen many men whose bowels have left and they didn't die right away. I was like, well, thanks for that. Wow. Like, what do you do in your spare time? Commentator by night, surgeon by day, or soldier by, I don't know. But, the, but I was like, move on to the next commentator. So Joab is fiercely loyal. Um, he can sm- he's, he is, Joab, one thing that he is out to do, he is out to protect David. And one thing that we can know, he doesn't do it in the greatest ways, but he's fiercely loyal. Um, but he's also fiercely simple. How he handed, handled Absalom in bringing him back, basically bringing an enemy back into the kingdom to try to preserve the kingdom. Again, his motive might have been right, but didn't think that one through. Absalom was not repentant. He deserved to be punished for what he did, even though it was also um, Amnon and David's fault. There needed to be justice all around. So Sheba gets up north to the city of, of, of Abel, which is just about as far north as you can get without leaving Israel. So he gets all the way to the brim. He hides himself, and there he's met by his clan, his friends, his relatives, the Bicharites, they all join around him and they all enter into the city. And Joab shows up with his army and immediately starts attacking it. He immediately goes to work. Notice that he doesn't announce ahead of time, Sheba, come out. He just surrounds the city, besieges it, builds a battering ram and starts... In fact, the wise woman, she's, she doesn't know. She's like, why are you here just to destroy And then he tells her, oh, I'm not here to destroy. I'm here for this one guy. (laughs) So he doesn't say anything up front. He just starts going to work. He's just kind of this one-tracked mind guy where I'm, you know, Sheba, 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 protect David, protect David, and kill whoever I can. It doesn't matter how much destruction, I got to get him, I got to get him, I got to get him. That's what's going on. Now, uh, to besiege a city... In the ancient world, it meant to surround it and completely cut it off, off from its food and from its water. Um, cities in the ancient world, all of their produce was grown outside the city walls. People would own, you know, the parcels of land where they would grow the wheat and, and, uh, or any cattle or livestock. That was all outside. So when, a, when an army came and besieged a city, they would cut them off from that food source and the invading army would feed off of the food out there. And we have record of besieging in the ancient world lasting years, years, because they had a food supply, a backup source in the city, and they would just wait them out as long as they could. We have, we have a record of this in Second Kings, where there's a, uh, it causes a famine, and people are, you know, eating 
whatever they can find. And they're, you know, it gets, becomes a very desperate situation. Um, that's what's going on here. And what it means, a batter, uh, when they begin to battering it, they construct a battering ram and they're just trying to breach the wall. It's incessant. It is never-ending. It, it is persistent. And Joab, it, he's the type of guy that will auger down there for as long as it takes. But again, notice Joab has not explained anything to anyone. Enter the wise woman, Hakam in Hebrew. Uh, in the Septuagint, it's the word sophos from the, word, the Greek word family Sophia for wisdom. Hakam. It means, it means there's a few different words for wisdom in the Bible. One means general wisdom, like uh, I, I am a wise person, or I go, I, in other words, I, I go about living in a wise way. But hakam and sophis mean a particular kind of wisdom. It means I know how to do something. Like if, if my pipes get plugged, I would call someone with sophis, a sophist person, who would know specifically how to unplug those pipes, right? Um, it's more, that's, this is what she, they're describing, this, her, and actually this city. They are, they are wise in bringing peace, in solving problems. And this woman enters, and she's, and notice, she's a very powerful and influential woman. I mean, think of a battle scene. Think of a city, <clears throat> and think of an army outside the city, Think of arrows flying back and forth. Think of panic. Think of mayhem. Think of, uh, I don't know, think of oil going over the wall. I, you know, think of a movie that you've seen. Think of people dying of hunger, think, uh, people scared, panic, loud, uh, shouting. And this woman comes out and basically says, stop, listen. And everyone does. She's a powerful woman. It's like, the brakes go on and they look at this woman and she says, I want to talk to Joab. And Joab says, all right. Something about her is powerful. She's a very powerful woman. He comes and she says, hey, are you Joab? Yeah, listen to me. I'm listening. Okay, you've got my attention. And she says, look, this is a, this is a historic city. It's got an incredible heritage in Israel. It's a city known for its wisdom. People would come here to this city and they would, they would come for an answer. They would come with a conundrum. They would come with a problem and they would, almost as soon as they would say it, they would get an answer. They would walk away. We're, we're known for this kind of wisdom. And she says, and I'm of that old order. Why are you here to destroy this place? And Joab says, who, me? <laughs> I'm not here to destroy. Meanwhile, half mile down the road, Amasa is dying slowly in his own blood. Me? I'm not here to destroy. But then he tells her, I'm just here. This, there's this guy named Sheba from Ephraim. He's a Bichriite. He is a major threat. He's a national threat to the kingdom of David. You give me him and we're, we're done. And she says, I just can't imagine. What was, she, this woman says, I'll have his head thrown over. I mean, yeah, I try to use my imagination when I read this. I just think, is, did, when Joab heard that, was he like, 
to his people, like, well, let's just wait and see what happens. And then, you know, an hour later, two hours later, maybe by nightfall, there, here comes, you know, Sheba's head. Who falls over it to his feet. And Joab goes, well, works for me. And he blows the trumpet and it's over. Just crazy. Now, we, and we, we might think, well, she convinces the people, even Sheba's own clan, that it'd be better for only one person to die, Sheba, than hundreds, maybe thousands to die. We might think, how is that deep wisdom? Seems like a no-brainer to me, right? Duh, of course. But remember that you and I have the perspective of being outsiders. For us, it seems like a super easy uh, solution. But, it's, but from their vantage point, from the, in the middle of this conflict, you might see things differently. Sheba is a rebel, and he has influenced the 10 northern tribes to split off from David. He also has quite uh, some political weight to throw around here. And he also has a lot of support from his own clan and the people that are around him. He's in his own territory. Joab is assuming if we're going to do this, we've got to do it by force before he can amass his own force. We've got to do this. But somehow, we're not told how or what she actually said, but Lady Wisdom here calls from the city walls and changes everyone's minds. She works... She. What she says to, it, the, to even his own family, his own clan, I don't know. Was it maybe something like, look, do you guys want to go, you know, uh, do you guys want to be besieged for maybe years? Slowly starve and die? Because, this, because of basically this one guy? Do we want to go through that? I don't know what she said. Maybe she said, look, we have record of time under David, and it was, a, by and large, a time of prosperity. Do we want to go into another civil war? Do we want to keep doing But somehow her words were so powerful that it persuaded people, people that were fully with Sheba. They were with him. I mean, he blew the trumpet in the beginning and they all pulled away from David. He had influence. This woman, through her wisdom, through her sophus, she was able to turn people around. Another word for wisdom in the Greek is phronomos. In fact, that's what they would say to people of wisdom. They would say, she's a phronomos person, or he's a phronomos man. Um, fool is the word moros in the Greek. It'd say, he's a moros man. Foolish. She's a front, somehow through her, she's, she is causing wisdom, and she's, people are seeing, okay, look, we're out, we're, we're um, you know, weighing the pros and the cons here, and it's, let's bring, let's have peace. And she's got this kind of influence where she calls out to them and she turns them away from war. We <clears throat> need wisdom. We need someone. We're looking for a person that is able to barter peace between us and others where there doesn't seem to be peace. And sometimes you need someone from the outside. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, married people know this, if we're honest, when we get in fights with our spouse, when we're arguing and we can't, we're so involved, we're so upfront, we're so in it that we can't seem to see a way through. We're emotionally invested, where insecurities are flaring up, 
and we can't seem to see a way through. We're exhausted, and, we, and then an outsider comes in, perhaps a therapist or, a, or a, a pastor or a counselor or just a good old friend, a wise, a phronomos person or someone that can exercise sophos comes in, and because they've got an outside perspective, they can help contribute, maybe not bring the solve, but they can contribute to a way forward, a way through. We all need in, in our lives a person or people from the outside that can see things cle- clearly or at least clearer than us that can show a path to reconciliation and to peace. We feel this on an individual level when we're in you know, our own relationships where we need to phone a friend or call someone from the outside. We see this on a political scale. Every politician runs on this ticket. I'm the one that can show a way through. Here are all the problems. I mean, basically, all, everyone running for high office or any office will first, out, it first bring a polemic about the current administration. Here are all the problems that we're facing, and here's how they have failed to fix it. But here's what I'm going. I'm the one that will, that will bring us to a better America or to a better society or to a better world. Every major, I, I think every major presidential candidate has said something like that. Um, that I mean, it, that I can remember. When I was a kid, they all have this kind of same basic structure. Here are the problems. Here's what we're facing. They can't do it, but I can. That's the formula. And why? Why? Why do, why do they keep running on that thing? Because it's, there's something in the human heart that is looking for a king. There's something in the human heart that longs for a king. We don't, in America, we pride ourselves for not having a, you know, we, we got rid of the monarchy, we split off from that, but we do. We king celebrities, we queen them, we worship people. We emulate our life. If I can just be like him, if I could just have a life like her, if I could just do what she does or what he does or what they do, we have a celebrity culture in America. Why? Because in our hearts, there's an ancient, I think, collective ancient memory that knows we're looking for a king. We're looking for someone that can do it. And Lady Wisdom calls. In fact, wisdom is personified famously in in Proverbs. Let me read this to you. This is from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. And she has set her table. She's set in a feast. And what does she do? She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town, from the city walls. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks wisdom, who lacks sense, she says, come, eat from my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live And walk in the ways of insight. And then she goes on to say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What is the knowledge of this, of this wise woman here? Well, in, basically, it is, it is the death of one to save the many. You guys, the, the, the big story is that we are Sheba. We are the rebels. We are the ones that decided to break off from the Davidic kingdom, from Jesus' kingdom. We're the ones on the run. We're the ones fighting for self. And we deserve judgment. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is often depicted, especially in church, in a lot of uh, ancient church tradition, the Holy Spirit um, is known as Lady Wisdom. In fact, a lot of early Christians called the Holy Spirit Sophia, which means wisdom. And what does Jesus say that wisdom says? Well, it says, Jesus says that the Spirit comes in John 16, that the Holy Spirit is coming into the world, yelling, telling the world, inviting the world, telling the world of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. In other words, you're Sheba, you've rebelled, you've sinned, there's a fracture between you and the son of David. There's two kingdoms at war here, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, and you deserve judgment for this rebellion. It's what you deserve. But instead of God killing the rebels, us, he becomes the rebel. He dies in the rebels, he dies in the traitor's stead. He stands in Sheba's place. Um, I'm sorry, I have, you know, we... I told you last week we're reading, we're reading to Noble, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. We just finished it. It was so great. It was so good. At one point, not knowing, not, Noble not ever hearing the story, at one point Noble says, Aslan reminds me of the Lord. It's like, well done, C.S. Lewis. That's exactly the point. And you remember, Edmund is one of the sons, there's two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve. Edmund, who's, who's, um, from the very beginning, he's just a snot, you know, and he's kind of poisoned by this self-indulgent, entitlement, spoiled snot kind of an attitude. And he goes into Narnia, and there's this weakness that the witch sees in him, the witch of Narnia, she sees in him and she exploits it. She sees that he's at odds with his brother and two sisters, and she says, you know, you're the, I don't have any kids of my own. You're the type of kid that I would like to make king of Narnia when I'm gone. And you know what he says? He says, well, Peter, his older brother, will he be king too? And she, she catches it. And she goes, no, no. She's, in the biblical technical sense, she is exercising sophists. She's wise in dividing a family. She sees it. She's smart. She, she's shrewd. She goes for it. She says, no, not him. She, and, she, and she says, but every king needs servants. And Edmund's like, yes, yes. And she turns him. Later, the, all four kids come into Narnia. Edmund keeps it a secret that he's even met the witch. And he sneaks away in the middle of the night when they're at the beaver's house he sneaks away in the middle of the night and he goes to the queen and he reports to her all that's going on. They're at the beaver's house. She doesn't even know that Aslan's back. He goes, 
Some guy named Aslan's back. She's like, oh, shoot. And, they're me- and he even tells them where they're meeting Aslan. He's a fully, full-on traitor. Later, Edmund is rescued, and there's this law in Narnia that the witch knows really well. And she approaches Aslan after Edmund's been rescued, and he's feeling really bad and sorry. He's like, shoot, I really blew it. And, but he can't, you, you know, Aslan can't just say, it's fine. She, the witch comes and says, you know the ancient laws. Every traitor is mine. I get the blood of every traitor. Every treacherous deed belongs to me. That kid belongs to me. He's mine by law, and you cannot, you cannot go against the law. And she's right. Aslan can't. Jesus, in his famous sermon, said, do not, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not. I've come to fulfill it. Do not think I've come to get rid of the Old Testament or get rid of the Torah. I've not. I've come to fulfill it. I'm, it's, it is me. I am the fulfillment of it. And he goes on to say, in fact, whoever relaxes even the least one of these commandments will be called worse in the king of heaven. Aslan is bound by this law. So he arranges a trade. You know the story. He says to the witch, take me instead. And she's just like, I get to kill Aslan, and he thinks that he's saving these kids. I'm going to kill him, and then I'm just going to go kill them. Are you that stupid, Aslan? Right? She's just rejoicing, but she knows he's a a lion of his word. So he shows up at the stone table, and they have their way with Aslan. It's this frightening scene. They beat him, they shave him, they make fun of him, they spit on him. It's this really brutal scene. And then she mercilessly, well, she tells him, I'm going to kill them too, by the way. And then she kills Aslan. Lucy and Susan are watching from afar and they're just horrified. They can't believe it. And then Aslan, as you know, he raises from the dead and the stone table cracks. And he explains to the children, she didn't know the deeper magic, that when a willing victim gives their life for a treacherous person, the stone table, which represents the law, will crack, it will be fulfilled, and death itself will work backwards. Phronimos. Wisdom. Sophos, wisdom. We're looking for an Aslan. We're looking for someone that can find the way where they're, you know, the, the, the problem between Edmund and the witch was a way that seemed insoluble. There's no way to get through this. Aslan found a way at great cost to himself. That's what the Holy Spirit says through us as he's making us into Phronimos men and Phronimos women. He's, we go out and we say the Holy Spirit through us to the world says there is, a, there is a breach between you and God and you deserve judgment. He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. You deserve judgment, but have you considered the one, Jesus for president, have you considered the one that actually can bridge the gap. He can bring peace. In fact, he's called the Prince of Peace. 
and at great cost to himself, he died for you, the Sheba. He was punished on the cross. The wrath that, was, that we, you and I deserved for going our own way, for breaking the law, for detaching ourselves rebelliously against the king. The wrath that you and I deserve was poured out onto Jesus on that cross so that you and I could be free, so that he could make his enemies his children. That's the Christian story. That's the Christian story. And that story is what makes us Fronimas people, wise people. Because it doesn't just heal the fracture between us and the cosmic fracture, us and heaven. It's also the way to heal the fractures in our relationships. A Christian that's at odds with someone else, you guys, it's not the funnest thing to say, but it's, this is the way we bring peace. This is the Fronimas way. We die to ourselves. We say, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to give up my own rights. I'm going to come out so that, so that we can have peace, so that we can move forward. I'm going to let you hurt me. I'm going to be vulnerable to you again. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, maybe imperfectly, but genuinely, I'm going to keep trying and keep trying. I'm going to lead in that way. It's power through weakness. Why? Because it's baked into the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. It's baked into the cosmic story. This is how Jesus healed the fractured relationship between us and God. He didn't come with an army and demand respect by force, although he could have. He didn't come and flex and say, bow, you have to. He could have. No, he showed true power by becoming weak, by submitting to death on the cross, the death that we deserve even. This is what the Bible calls cruciformity. We, it, Christians don't just look to the cross as an event that saved us from our sins. Oh, we do. But it's also a template by which we navigate through. It's, our, it's how we become wise, Phronimos. That's how we become this way. We see everything through the grid of the cross. How do you mend your broken relationships? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Serve. Don't demand to be served. Serve. And when that Sheba rises up in you again, look, quickly toss his head over the wall. Um, 17th, I got that idea from 17th century uh, Puritan writer John Trapp. Here's what he says about this passage, and I'm going to read it in the Old English because it's better that way. John Trapp, 17th century, he says, every man's breast is a city enclosed. Think of that. Every man's breast is a city enclosed. Every sin is a traitor that lurketh within the, those walls. God calleth for Sheba's head. Neither hath he any quarrel to us but for our person, but for our sin. 
If we lose the head of our traitor above the life of our soul, we shall justly perish in the vengeance. He's saying, your body, your person is a kingdom. And within this kingdom, there is a traitor named Sin, Sheba, that calls for service to self, that looks through the world as that everybody ought to be serving me. I have rights. I stand up for myself. I advocate for myself. There's nothing wrong with advocacy, by the way. It just, it can so quickly move into a selfish thing masked in something that seems so just and so right. And we put, pretty soon, we put self-preservation in front of the truth, in front of mercy, in front of beauty, in front of self-sacrifice. And that, to that degree, we cause destruction in the, world, in, the, in the lives around us, in the relationships around us. Paul today prayed and thanked God for, that there's people that he has seen that are now living in the prison of their own regret of decisions that they've made that, are now, that have broken down relationships that are now haunting them. And I don't mean this in the pejorative way, but morose people who have made foolish decisions. Why? At the time, is it because it has nothing to do with intellectual prowess. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a self-oriented man is foolish. Hear what Lady Wisdom says. The fear or the preference or the centering on the Lord is the beginning of Sophos. It's the beginning. In other words, him first, not self-preservation, him first. To the degree that we are self-preserving, that we are all about self first, to that degree we become we become morose. We, we, our relationships around us start to we become fight or flight and things begin to fall apart and words begin to get said and dynamics start to be in, ensued in a relationship and things start breaking down. And these things like, a, like gangrene, they set in. And it's hard to break that. How do you do it? Maybe, you're, maybe you can think of your own relationships. How do you do that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning. And what did the Lord do? He even put us sinners first. That's what we celebrate today. To the degree that we, by the Spirit of Christ, crucify that old man and present our bodies as living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12, to that degree, I think, there will begin to be unity and peace. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's the only way to heal a broken, a broken heart or a broken kingdom. You ever, are you ever young and you think to yourself, when I'm old, I'm never going to say cheesy things like that. And then you become and you say something cheesy and you start singing a song. Maybe it's just me. I'll never say dad jokes. And then I end up saying Bob's dad jokes. Christians live the gospel. That's the point. We've been mended by the gospel and and we use it as a way of life. 
And this is a reminder.